0: Jim's going to be bringing us his message from the last half of Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. Allow me to read that now. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art or imagination of man. but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Acts 17, verse 16 through 34, Word of God.
1: It's probably always true that whenever I'm speaking, I'm preaching to myself as well. Today is just one of those texts that is more so. I've always loved Acts chapter 17, and for not only good reasons, I could say to you, well, I love it because it's the Word of God, or I love it because it's such a clear presentation of the gospel, but truth be told, I really love it because it, it, it allows me to believe that I can be both intellectual, philosophical, um, That I can have the people of the world deeply respect me and be a Christian too. Because Paul doesn't only stand up in a synagogue and preach the truth. Here, he actually does it on a university setting. Where he looks around and and sees this devotion, this spirituality, this, this depth and history of thinking. And then begins to talk about Jesus. I love this text. I don't like, I've confessed this before, I don't like being thought of as um, intellectually inferior. And that can happen, actually, when you're a person of faith. Jesus makes a very bold statement, I guess, that I'm still coming to terms with. He says this, Unless you become like a child, you will surely not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now He's saying a whole lot more than... uh, Thinking about God is really hard and complicated, and God's just not that complicated. He's Talking more probably about the heart, but I can never completely separate what's going on here from what's going on in here, or vice versa. And the Apostle Paul walks into this intellectually deep, philosophically robust context and says, I have something that you need to hear. I have information that you need to deal with. That's an interesting thought in and of itself. Because let's be honest, we live in a time and we live in a, in a city, in a context, that the beliefs that happen in this room or from this book are not shared everywhere. I think you know that our culture is telling us things like there are many ways to God. And, you know, there might be different expressions of what faith might look like, but as um, grown-ups, as—we you know, we usually don't use this word, but we, we, we kind of mean something like it—as intellectuals, meaning as, as, as thinking grown-ups, it just seems best and appropriate— That we recognize and not just tolerate, but even celebrate diverse opinions about God and about ourselves and about the world that we live in. Isn't that the cultural soup in which we swim in? And yet Paul doesn't seem to share some of that. Like instead of this text being, and so Paul went into a philosophy of religion 101 class and just kind of sat down and shared some thoughts. No, this is more like Paul walks into a philosophy of religion class and says, Excuse me, professor, can I let you know where you got it wrong? That's not culturally sensitive at all. Commentators actually believe that maybe even Paul didn't even want to go to Athens. If you read the text, it it does seem like Paul is either directed by the Holy Spirit to go to Philippi, Or he is moved to go to the synagogue in Thessalonica. But after that, in this chapter, it seems like circumstances are what drive him. And because it got so difficult and so hard, because the persecution got so intense, the church leaders took him to Berea. And then because yet once again it got so intense, Paul goes to Athens. I don't think we really know, but it is at least important to maybe see. That what Paul is doing here is definitely different than what he does in other places. There was a synagogue in Athens, and yet it doesn't describe him as going straight to Athens, or to the synagogue in Athens. It actually describes him as waiting for his companions to come. Some people actually believe that Paul may have already deduced that in this intellectual capital that the gospel was not going to thrive. I don't think Paul was definitely intimidated. You don't get that from this text. But I think maybe one of the toughest lessons that I've had to learn that you almost intuitively know to be true goes something like this. The smarter we get, the more sophisticated we become, the less we need Jesus. Unless you become like a child, and we don't read childlike, we read childish. And I'm an educated person. I've gone to school. I got the, the, the diplomas to, to prove it. And I no longer believe in superstitions and fairy tales. I no longer believe in some kind of a sky fairy that's up there. I no longer believe in some kind of a ever after, a once upon a time. Like I've grown up. I've figured out the truth about, well, there are kids present, you know. And isn't God and thoughts about God like that? So isn't it just good enough that what you and I deal with are just like our religious flavor or our religious sentiment? Like as long as we're being spiritual, isn't that good enough and just let all of the differences just kind of go by the wayside? Can't we just all agree that as long as we're being spiritual, that's really all that matters? And the Apostle Paul seems to say, no, 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 no. There is something, and we see this in the text. Look in your Bibles. We're going to be walking through Acts 17, um, beginning in verse 16, actually, and we're going to see that there is something, the Holy Spirit, I believe, that is compelling Paul, that even if you didn't plan to be here, even if I didn't, I didn't specifically like, tell you, go to Athens. Now that you're here, something's going on inside of you, and you're going to have to speak up about this. There really is like a, almost a, 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 a clear example that the Apostle Paul doesn't just go through town. And you know what I love about Vegas? The shopping. It's incredible. Like I really do. Like great place, And the food. Oh my goodness. The food is amazing. Really. That's all you saw in Vegas. What else is there? It's Vegas. You ever been to Charleston, South Carolina? The food is amazing. And it's just got the quaintest little shops downtown. The shopping and the food, they're amazing. Did you see anything else? No. Paul seems to be very aware. You guys know there's a university on campus? On campus. You know there's a university in town? Did you know there's a city on Oklahoma State campus? That's actually a better way to put it. Did you notice there's a Stillwater at Oklahoma State? <laughs> Do you realize that this is the context in which we have been placed? And the Apostle Paul can't help but pay attention to what's happening around him. And verse 16 describes what happens inside of him. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's what commentators are getting at. Maybe he really didn't intend to be here. His spirit was provoked. Um, Other translations describe it like this. Deeply distressed. Another one, which may give you a flavor of this word, outraged. Oh, that's different. I, I used to read this and it was like, and his spirit was moved and he saw a great connecting point and decided he would talk about it. Now, the apostle Paul sees what's going on inside of the city And is outraged. He is is deeply disturbed inside of himself. He is provoked to the point of having to say something. He is provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And that's what Athens is like. And not just because it's Athens. There were idols in other cities. But there is something about this one. That the Apostle Paul feels like. I'm not going to the synagogue today. I'm going to go down to the Areopagus, a place where intellectuals gather to discuss. Luke says in verse 21, here is how the city is described. And I'm amazed at the number of similarities between our, and I mean our particular culture. Not just America, but even in Stillwater. Our particular culture. I'm saying like the Sunnybrook family. We're not that different than the people around us. We're going to be honest. We share similar views of the world, of right and wrong. Luke records this, now the Athen- all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend time in nothing except, can you kind of tell what Luke thinks? Luke's not real pleased with this. I don't think Paul, Paul was either. They would spend nothing, all of their time, with nothing except telling or hearing something new. Essentially, if I I could explain it in these terms, they believed culturally in the city of Athens that to be sophisticated, to be civilized, to be a true Athenian, is to take every idea with open arms. Welcome to 2019. This sermon reminds me that not much changes even when I think everything is changing. The Athenians believed. Well, that's a great idea. Let's talk about it. Well, that's another great idea. Let's talk about it. It reminded me of a conversation I had with a young man from Taiwan, and after I was done sharing the gospel, he somehow got the idea that Jesus would be one more thing for him. And I had to try to explain to him, and it was difficult for him to put these pieces together. No, I'm not trying to give you one more thing. I'm trying to give you the only thing. Is Jesus one more thing to you? One more way of looking at life? One more life coach? One more voice? Of, uh, one more voice in, in your pantheon of, of, of advice and information? Is Jesus just one more? The, the Athenians actually say... What is this babbler saying? That word babbler literally means like a scavenger. It's a picture of a dog going in and out of garbage dumps, just collecting things to eat. That was their view of Paul. And it's interesting, Paul's not there to try to impress them with his reasoning abilities. He is there to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he does so, kind of confronting the things that they believe and the ideas that they have. But he does not deviate from the gospel. See, In other places, he would walk into the synagogue and he would speak of this Messiah that they were all looking for. And he would say, the Messiah has come. And he suffered and died. And God raised him from the dead. And the Jewish people really had a hard time believing that that was possible. And so there was fierce opposition. And here... They're not having a hard time believing that the Messiah would do that as much as they are believing that God even cared. The philosophies that they swam in were were known by two great schools of thought. One were the Epicurean philosophers, and the others were known as the Stoics. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Epicurean philosophy. You, in order to get the most from this life, need to pursue happiness and personal fulfillment, and wherever you can find that. Now, now by the way, that doesn't mean you just go out and drink yourself silly. It doesn't mean you just sleep with anyone that you can. It means that you weigh everything, and if you weigh it all out, because you've got this amazing ability to think through these things, and if you weigh it all out, and that will produce more happiness than strife, then go ahead and do it, because what really is important is that you are happy and fulfilled. Like, isn't that why we're here? Isn't happiness better than not happiness? You need to pursue this. And as you weigh it out, you're constantly trying to pursue. Follow this path of your happiness. And wherever you find that, that's really what life is all about. The Stoics had a a little bit of of a deeper way of looking at things. They saw the world as this bringing together of God and of nature, and particularly of human reasoning And they wanted to bring in God and nature and human thought together in unity. And so it wasn't really about your happiness, although they believed this would make you happy. But being at one with nature and being at one with the rest of humanity is really what God is all about. Both of them had an idea of God that went something like this. Like, sure, there's one there. I don't know if he, she, it really cares a lot about what happens here. And therefore, we are left to figure this out for the most part on our own. And by human thinking and coming together, we can make the most of this. I had no idea I was living in an Epicurean and Stoic center in Stillwater, Oklahoma, but I think I am. Those are the philosophies that I've had to wrestle with. And they're the ones that I see us wrestling with. The pursuit of our own happiness. This kind of feeling as though we've been left alone. Some have called it this new secular age that we now live in. Where God for the most part is more of an afterthought. Than really kind of the core of all things. Now here's what's interesting. The Apostle Paul does not walk into this audience and go. You know this seems to be working for them. I should leave them alone. Now. When Paul leaves, you will not see a coexist bumper sticker on the back of his donkey. The Apostle Paul looks at this very spiritual, this very well thought out way of living that, let's be honest, seems to be working for them. And Paul goes, This is terrible. Who are, so, who are some of the first Christians who begin to wrestle with the fact that are we sure we want to say that Jesus is the only way? You know who are some of the first Christians that do this? Missionaries. Missionaries. Who go to a place who believe that God has called them and then they meet the people. And they do what we would do. Fall in love with them. They begin to live like them, and there is something if you don't believe me just stop for a second like you are a missionary in the world in which you live so don't act like you got to go to africa to have this happen to you or to china No, no no i'm a missionary all the way from canada and this has happened to me everywhere i've lived When I went to Illinois, and I was with these farmers, I didn't even know they had farmers in Illinois, and I went and I lived among these farmers, and everybody, the ones that weren't even following Jesus, I looked at them and I thought, this seems to be working for them. And they're the nicest people. Apple pie, it's the best. That's missionaries. That begin to really wrestle with, am I giving them anything by giving them Jesus? It's better than what they already have. The answer is, Jesus is everything. But before we just go, yeah, I don't know how they got there. I don't know. How did you get where you're at? And I promise you, I am preaching to myself this morning. I wrestle with this. I need texts like this. Not for the reasons that I thought. That somehow would make me, you know, now if I just... If I just do this, then I can bring together this desire to be intellectual and to be smart and sophisticated and civilized and be a Christian too. Now, Paul seems to be just headlong devoted, just zealously committed to the gospel, no matter what anyone else thinks around him. He asks some pretty interesting questions. The first one goes like this. Do you believe anything? You guys believe anything. Now here's what's interesting. What he's really saying is, wow, you guys believe in everything, don't you? He recognizes that the ability to believe in anything, which we all have, the Bible, and Paul's about to speak that there is this desire in every single one of us to just want to worship something. We just need something to believe in, something that we can... Find hope in something that will give us a a control on the world around us and a hope for tomorrow. That's what most religions are designed to do, to give us an ability of control and hope. Apostle Paul, do you believe in anything? Look at Acts 17, verses 22 and 23. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. By the way, that's not a compliment from him. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. They were, I don't even know if the word would be afraid. They were so in tuned with the way things were, they even knew that there were things that they didn't know. I don't know if they were trying to cover all their bases. It seems like they somehow intuitively know. We don't know everything, and so we should have an altar with the inscription to an unknown God because there's got to be one up there that we don't understand or know about. They're so open-minded. Paul would say that they're not thinking clearly. So Paul addresses this. Paul isn't just looking for a connecting point to preach his sermon. Paul sees what's going on. He is deeply provoked, and he has to say something. He sees a spirituality, tell me that this doesn't resonate with you, he sees a spirituality that does not give a picture of health, but a picture of not healthy. Eugene Peterson wrote a number of years ago, as it seemed to be very, very popular American culture in the 80s, to talk about spirituality and what it meant to be spiritual. And he saw the church then get really, really excited about this new wave of spirituality and Peterson warned that such obsessive talk about spirituality is like obsessing about anything. If all I ever talked to you about was food, and it was just food and food and food, if all I ever talked to you about was the entertainment that I was, uh, I was obsessed with, and the shows, if that's all I ever talked about, if all I ever talked about is sports, and that's all I knew to talk about, that's not the sign of health. That's the sign that something is broken, actually. To be spiritual, to be obsessed with spirituality, may not be a sign that someone is healthy. It might be a sign that someone is starving inside. By the way, this can even be true of, of people who understand themselves as Christian, who are constantly looking for spiritual experiences, who are constantly looking for some kind of like real manifestation, and they are obsessed with it of peace with God through Jesus Christ it happens to everybody the apostle Paul says I walked around and I just noticed that you're spiritually starving now you didn't know what you were saying you have on there to an unknown God and then he says this I love this and now what you worship as unknown I am going to proclaim to you and he makes that connection He moves it a little bit further. This is why what we believe actually matters. It's not just that we are spiritual beings and that we worship. Paul takes it one step further. Do you believe that God made everything? See, that belief matters. That when I ask you the question, do you believe that God made everything? Your answer to that question should shape your next week. Your your future. If you believe that God made everything, then that gives you an understanding of who in fact God actually is. Now, they would have believed that there was a God and that God made everything. Paul's going to make some connections to some of their own philosophers. But what he's trying to point out is, I don't think you're thinking about this very clearly. Like, you believe that God made everything. No, I want you to think about that, because you build these great big temples. How is God that made everything going to get in there? Like, you you know that God made everything, and yet somehow you, you fail to recognize that if that is true, then then what real need does he have of you? Do you understand that God made everything? Look at what the text actually says down in verses 24 and 25. Paul speaking to their context and challenging it at the same time. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I'm, I promise you we're aware That as we update the sanctuary, we do not think it's this incredible place that God will come and dwell. Like somehow then he wouldn't be somewhere else. Now, may we preach faithfully who he is. May we worship faithfully who he is. But we are very aware that God will not be limited by the location in which we worship him. The Bible actually teaches so much more. He does not live in temples made by man. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Step one, the Apostle Paul wants us to realize, and this is a big deal to us. To to be able to sit in our culture and to recognize that there is an, I'm about to say a bad word, there is an insignificance to us. It's so wrong to say. We live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with individual significance and importance. Our children are going to be world changers. We are going to make a difference that's going to last for the next three billion years. Uh, Three billion? You think you're kind of going on the was working with a youth group in Ohio one time and the youth pastor just kept saying to them, it was their theme for the year, make a difference that will last a um, 100 years in your high school. And I was working with kids that were still trying to figure out if their belt was supposed to match their shoes. The answer, by the way, is yes. And I, I just couldn't help but, yeah, I know what you're thinking, right? How many of you right now are actually thinking, oh, Jim, you are aiming so low. Like, we should... Imagine trying to tell a person who's 15, 16 years old to leave a 100-year impact on their school. You think you did that? How many of you left a 100-year impact on your high school? Yeah, And, and your high school had like five people in it, and you couldn't do it, right? See, this confronts us. I think it would have confronted them. By the way, I'm not saying there's not value. I'm not saying that there's not worth. But to be Christian begins by understanding God and us. God is not in need of us. He does not live in the places that we build. What kind of place could we build for him? Paul says, I need you to believe. Like this might confront your cultural sensitivity. But God is not in need of us. That's what makes his love for us so amazing. If he died because he just couldn't live without us, you would go, oh yeah, that makes sense. If he didn't need us and he died for us, if he didn't need you and he died for you, how do you explain that? Oh, the great love of God for us in Christ. Paul is confronting their way of thinking. He went much further. Do you believe not only that God made everything, but do you believe that you were created in the image of God? God created you in his image. Now, here's what's interesting. They would go, yeah, we believe that too. This is where Paul really gets in. He says, hey, I'm going to quote some of your own poets, right? It's like listening to an REM song and realizing, wow, they get it, even though they don't, we don't agree with them, but they get it. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. Okay, quick REM moment. Um, In him we live. Here's what he says in verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. See, this is what's fascinating about the other religions of the world. Okay, I'll just say the religions of the world. Don't need to do the word other there. The religions of the world. This is why it can be so tempting for us. Is because there is a truth that exists in it. We look at it and we go, yeah, like there are points of similarity. Paul gets that and he responds to that. Isn't it true that our own poets have said this, that we are indeed his offspring? So I'm not just asking, asking you to believe that God made the world, because the Epicurean Stoics, they would have believed that. A little bit of a God wound it up and then just let it go. No, but doesn't it seem like, like there's something? can't you just tell there is something different between humanity and the rest of creation? By the way, you really are allowed to say, no, I can't see any difference. I just do. Like, I just see a difference. There is something about humanity. And the Apostle Paul says, yeah, there is this, this, this constant recognition. Where does that come from? Like, your own poets were able to figure that out not even by divine revelation, but just from the general revelation revelation of God to humanity, we recognize there is something in humanity. But then Paul takes it one step further. Look at verse 29. Therefore, being God's offspring, we ought not. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing how we get it, and there's something special about humanity, but we still think we can do whatever we want. We are so special, we are so important, we are so autonomous that can't we do what we want? And the Apostle Paul says, see, that's where you're not thinking clearly. If it is true that he made us, and if it is true that we are made in his image, then aren't we made for a purpose of making much of the one that made us in his image? This is where I need, I need Divine revelation to help me understand that my worship was not only designed by God, but actually is something that I owe to God. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's a big statement. Essentially what he's saying and and, and what we don't get because we don't have idols like that. But how if I put it this way? Since we're made in in God's image, we ought not to think that this divine being that made everything that is self-sufficient in and of itself, himself, that we cannot set the terms of what worship is all about. That we don't have that level of significance or importance. Therefore, God's divine revelation to us about himself directs our lives. That we can't just make God into our own image. Do you know God loves hockey more than any other sport? I know you do. Did you know what God really cares about? I have a feeling you're going to tell me what you care about. And by the way, we're all guilty of that. So we might not use gold or stone or wood and then pat ourselves on the back because we're more sophisticated. And yet many of us have this incredible God of openness and tolerance, have this amazing God of of inclusiveness as defined by us and by our group. Really? Like you, you think we, like us, you think we're able to create a God That will then soothe our conscience. That will give us the amount of control that we need to make it through our day. And hope tomorrow to make it through our tomorrow. And you really think that that is going to work out in the end? See What the Apostle Paul is doing here. Is he is just confronting the idols of that day in that town. To try to pretend that we don't have them. Try to somehow pretend that that's not us. Is one more, one more lesson in us just deluding ourselves. The apostle Paul makes it very, very clear that if you are created in His image, then the worship that you offer is something that you owe Him, and somehow we intuitively know there's something broken in that. The apostle Paul's not done there; he keeps going. He asks this question: Do you believe that God is pleased with you? Now, this is an interesting one because. Pretty much all of us live in the wake of the I'm okay, you're okay generation, while at the same time are willing to admit that we're all messed up and that we're all broken. Now, there's a contradiction we should probably spend more time working through. Do you believe that God is pleased with you? That's a great question. Do you believe that, and again, when I say that, hear me, I'm talking like apart from your relationship with Jesus. Do you believe that people are okay? with God and that God is okay with people based upon their own intentions, based upon um, the the way that they, to the best of their own ability, are just expressing their understanding of God. Do you believe that that is enough? Left to myself? I I can start going down that road. Left to myself? If I just got in a room with a bunch of like-minded people, I, I, I I know how we would get to that conclusion. And so the Apostle Paul stands in an audience that really doesn't agree with him, but the Apostle Paul's not there to be agreed with. He is there to speak passionately, I believe compassionately, passionately and compassionately, the truth about God. The truth about their relationship with God. You want to see a great text on the inclusive nature of God? Look at this one, verse 30. Do you believe that God is pleased with you? Well, explain this verse to me Acts 17, verse 30. It's a good one to underline. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Isn't it good that God is so inclusive? Who does God believe should repent and change their mind about Himself, about themselves? Everybody, even people in Canada, because I heard they have good health care. I don't know if that part's even true. But let me tell you this. It's not true. They need Jesus. Yeah, but I'll tell you, it seems like they are so happy. I don't care what it seems. They need Jesus. But how about people who, the people who, all people everywhere to repent. In the past, God looked over this ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere repent do you believe that like do you believe that about yourself that that will shape your decision about whether or not to put your hope in someone other than than Jesus there are still I believe many in this room that are putting kind of their their true hope in themselves um, in their best intentions in their best efforts not in Jesus They're still trying to create a God in their own image that understands that they're doing the best that they can instead of giving that truly to Jesus. And Paul says to these very spiritual, very intelligent, very religious people, you need Jesus. Your relationship with God is not okay. You need to change your mind about God. You need to change your mind about your own condition. You need Jesus. And then he takes it one step further. He asks them this question, do you believe that God will judge you someday? Wow, now that just brings it all home. Do you believe that God will judge you someday? I think what I think, what I think if I'm not careful, is I think that, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day, right? Like tons of people. And so I can only imagine, I mean, I've seen in a courtroom where they can't get through everybody I mean, when there's going to be everybody, I don't know how that's even going to work. I can't even imagine how God's going to judge everybody. It's either going to take a really, really long time or else God's going to kind of lose track of us. You know what I mean? And so, in the end, like you'll just kind of walk in and Mother Teresa's right in front of you and you're just going to kind of squeak in behind her. Did it. I'm <laughs> ah, man. How did you do that? Well, Mother Teresa was there and it's just kind of like, da, 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 da. right? That's how I did it. Did it right behind Mother Teresa. And then it's, it's kind of, are you supposed to be here? Ah, uh, you know, um, yes, I am. How would I get here if I wasn't? Well, I don't know. I saw some guy kind of squeezing behind Mother Teresa. So there's some kind of idea. We can't even fathom that. And we literally have some kind of blurred understanding of what the judgment day is going to be. Paul actually says, when it terms of the judgment, this is what's interesting. If, if you want to know if, as a Christian, you should believe in the judgment, the final judgment, Paul says the answer is the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 31. Do you believe that God will judge you someday? He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. In righteousness, not best of intentions, not on abilities, not on religiosity. In, Think about that, that statement. He will judge you in righteousness by the standard, his standard of his righteousness. You you do know the only way Mother Teresa is getting in is by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? By a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all people by raising him from the dead. If you want to know whether or not there will be a judgment day, the resurrection is proof of that. See, I won't be like squeaking in beside Mother Teresa as much as I will be walking in with Jesus. Like that's my plan. My like God, I have done nothing. If anything, anything I have done, <laughs> at best, you, you know it was broken and you know that my intentions were good. And that is nowhere near enough. Like God, my mind and my heart wanders. Like myself on a really, really, really good day is just still way too interested and obsessed with myself. And and God, I I cannot stand before you if you're going to judge me in righteousness. Like I couldn't even ask you to judge me by my own standard because I didn't even live up to that. And what Paul is saying to these people people in Stillwater, they need to hear this. You can be really, really intelligent. You can be really, really religious. Your intentions can be best. And you still are in desperate need of a savior. Do you know that? Let me sum it up in this way. I've written these down. I, I promise you we'll we'll put these somewhere. You're going to try to copy these down. The message of Paul looks something like this. He offers, instead of religion, it's not about religion, it's about Jesus. Religion is is humanity's attempt to control and to provide hope for for, for tomorrow. It's our way of regulating what we know about now and about eternity, about what is right and wrong, and all of those attempts are very, very human, and they all come up short. What the Bible offers is not religion, but it offers Jesus, and a relationship with him. That is the hope that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. Therefore, Paul's thinking goes something like this. We are religious creatures who have an innate desire to worship something. And that's not enough for you. You need more. Because God made the world and everything that exists, it is all his. And he can do with it as he pleases. And not only that, but God has made us in his image. And he both demands and deserves our worship. And this will happen on his terms and not on ours. Not only that, God is not pleased with our rebellion. We deserve to be punished and we must repent of our sin against God. And not only that, a day will come when God will judge everyone through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. And here is the good news. That God loves us and wants us to know him and worship him. He has proven this by sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins. He has now established a kingdom where his people will live under his rule. let call that church. When, uh, when we trust in God's plan of redemption, we then experience peace with God and no longer fear his judgment. Amen? His spirit in us confirms all of this is true. And lastly, all of this that Paul preached, all of what I have said to you this morning is for the eternal praise of his glorious grace. That's Jesus. That's why you have to almost be a child to get it. Because what he's asking for is not... Not just a humility of mind, but a humility of all of me to recognize my need for God and His provision for everything I need. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, for what He has accomplished that I could not, what we could not. God, thank you for the reality and the fullness of who He is and what He has done. And Father, I pray that you would give us an ability to enjoy that and to celebrate that this morning. God, we thank you um, for a community of faith that gives us strength and encouragement. And even more than that, I thank you for a time where we can respond. Father, the words that we are about to sing are not just true, but they are just so fitting from what we have just studied. And therefore, I pray, God, that you would give us as your people... A confident humility in the place that we live, in the place that we love. I thank you for Stillwater. I thank you for Oklahoma State University. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity that you and your divine sovereignty have placed us in. May we look at the context, at the time in which we live as being perfectly orchestrated for your glory for others' benefit, and for our joy. Teach us to not become frustrated, but to have great, great, great joy and purpose as we boldly proclaim hope in Christ and in him alone. And all God's people said, this time I'm gonna ask our servers go back. And we are going to start singing, and we are also at that same time gonna be handing out communion. I wanna encourage you to take the bread and the cup, and to hold it, and there will be a time, as Alex is leading us, that we will actually have an opportunity to take it together, but I really do hope and pray that you spend some some time uh, thinking through and responding in the words that you're going to be singing, describing the fullness and the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's worship well.